0: This episode of Converge with my guest, Michael Yankowski, is sponsored by WeaveWriter. WeaveWriter empowers you to write every day, tell better stories, and make every word count through the power of habit. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders. Basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. In the world of creativity, there are a lot of ways to proceed. If you're going to make things, you can do it a lot of different ways. And... In my experience, there's kind of two approaches. There's the theoretical approach and the experiential approach. And in the case of my guest today, he decided to go with both, and not just both on one project, but both on every project. Mike Leonkowski is an old friend, but in many ways, he's a new friend to me. I had a chance to get to know him when he was a student in college, but now as an adult and a married man and someone who is pursuing a lot of very important ideas creatively, he's inspired me in a way that I have found rare in the creative field. So much so that it's adjusted my own daily method of life. And as you begin to hear a little bit of his experiments around a new project called The Sacred Year, I think you might find yourself a little bit disrupted too in the best kind of way.
1: I actually believe deeply in this and I believe deeply enough in it to defend it from the best intentions of others while also being in dialogue with the creative community, of course.
0: I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome
1: you to Converge. Michael, welcome to Converge. Dane, thanks so much. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you for the chance.
0: Yeah, man. I met you a long time ago when you were in transition from adolescence to adulthood, and a lot has happened since those days.
1: Yeah, that is very true. We met more than a decade ago, Dana, and uh, I'm thankful for the continuation of the conversations that began way back then. Yeah, and by the way, I, I've given Michael permission, in case
0: you guys are wondering at home, he may slip and actually call me Dana, which is my real name, which I adore. My parents named me it. It's great. And if you guys don't know the lore behind it, when I first started uh, in professionally, I um, I had many people who thought I was a girl, so I went with my nickname, Dane, instead of Dana. And then when people meet me from different areas of my life, they tend to go back and forth. So I've given Michael full permission to treat me as we are, as friends. And uh, if he goes back and forth, he's not confused. He's just being honest. So let's start first, Michael, with your journey. When you were in college, you seemed significantly influenced by the liberal arts. You were a computer science major. And in that environment, you know, rich with people who tended to take life very seriously you went on an experiment that was pretty rare. And I'm wondering if you could share with the listeners a little bit of what that journey was.
1: Yeah. During the first year of my time in undergraduate, an idea sort of began or took root. And the idea was to actually go and try and understand a little bit more what it's like to be homeless, what it's like to be a person who's trying to survive on the streets. Um, I was working with an organization at my undergraduate uh, university and this organization was seeking to care well for people who were on the streets and so a lot of us were you know serving meals and getting to know and trying to advocate on behalf of people who were on the streets of Santa Barbara California and in the midst of that sort of uh, process of volunteering with that organization that idea took root uh, of Actually, going and trying to better understand in a firsthand kind of way what it's like to be on the streets, uh, not just from a volunteer perspective, but actually trying to make your way on the streets or trying to survive on the streets. So, a friend of mine named Sam and I actually spent five months on the streets of six different American cities as homeless men. Obviously, it was artificial, but we, for those five months, lived on the streets uh, and adopted a sort of homeless lifestyle. We slept under bridges. We ate out of garbage cans. We busked or panhandled in order to try and make enough money to eat those days. uh, Or we ate at rescue missions. We tried to enter into the life of a person who was on the streets as as much as we could and to see from the inside, what is it like? Uh, What does this lifestyle mean for people? Uh, What is the community like? And how does it affect us as individuals? And how do we relate to the people who both are on the streets uh, alongside of us sleeping under the same bridges or the people who are not homeless, uh, who are in a very different socioeconomic position? And so this was a fascinating, fascinating experience. And um I think it has you know, radically set the trajectory of my life. I've spent the last 10 years seeking to work alongside of organizations who serve the men and the women uh, who are on our city streets, places like rescue missions and homeless aid organizations and advocacy organizations. So in a, lo- a lot of ways, this five-month experience that Sam and I had has set the trajectory of much of my adult life since graduation from undergraduate. Hmm.
0: It's so funny when you say Sam. I know who you're talking of, and and I'm sure many have made this connection. But it almost sounds like like a Lord of the Rings trilogy, and <laughs> and you grabbed Samwise and went after it.
1: Totally, totally. But
0: but in that, and not too dissimilar from you know the allegory or whatever it is that Tolkien was up to, a lot of what was driving this for you was a faith commitment. At least it seemed like it was from the outside in. And that, I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about things that drove you that were good, and also observations you had along the way that were. Maybe surprising,
1: yeah. And I think you're you're absolutely spot on, Dan. You know that there was a faith commitment that was really driving this. I, I um, identify as a Christian, and one of the core tenets of Christianity is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think one of the things that's most frustrating or distracting to me as someone who you know claims this faith as my own is how much shouting uh, goes on uh, around (laughs) the religious landscape and how how oftentimes Christians are the people who are pointing the fingers and shouting down their neighbors rather than actually seeking to care well for their neighbors. And, you know, I found this to be true in my own life uh, as I was an undergraduate student. And um, this was very much a part of the decision to go and try and better understand what it's like to be a human being trying to exist on the streets, trying to survive on the streets. Because what I found myself doing was all too easily getting caught up in those kinds of shouting matches and saying, you know, I wanted to uh, pick apart people's beliefs or I wanted to pick apart um, what someone thought rather than actually care for the needs that existed in our world. And so I found myself sort of caught up in this and thinking, wait a minute, when I read the holy texts, when I read the scriptures, I see this character of Jesus who is doing extraordinary things to cross socioeconomic boundaries, to cross Assumptions about who the right people to be hanging out with are in order to love on the people and care well for people who are uh, in difficult circumstances. And so people who were on the outcasts of Jesus's society or who were on the margins of Jesus's society are often the people to whom Jesus goes to uh, first. And They take priority and precedence in the stories that we find within the New Testament. And so I sort of set the New Testament up against my own life and my own way of living out my faith and saw that there was a pretty big gap and that there was a pretty big difference. And that sort of generated in me a deep uh, sense of my own hypocrisy that I was saying one thing about what I believed and affirming these um, these texts, affirming the scriptures, affirming what I thought Christianity was to be, but then actually really not living it out in a way that made a lot of sense or that felt very consistent. So that rift that sort of existed for me was very much a part of this decision to go and to live on the streets and very much a part of uh, the decision for Sam and I both to say, okay, if we're going to seek to care well for other people, uh, it would we would do well to not come in with a whole freight load of presuppositions about what that means, but actually go and try and sit at the feet, uh, try and go and be alongside of people who are in these kinds of difficult situations, who are on the margins of our society, and say, how do we how do we care well? Uh, what does it mean to care well? What are the things that people are dealing with? Now, obviously, as two college students, uh, this was an artificial experience in a sense. We knew it was going to end. We knew that we were going to be out on the streets for those five months, and right. it was eventually going to come to an end. And yet, uh, some of the experiences I think Sam and I had were very, very real and very eye-opening in the sense of feeling uh, people's disgust with us, feeling people's anger towards us, feeling literally ignored and invisible uh, most of the time as we sat on the street corners and, you know, busked or or hoped for enough money to buy a meal that day and constantly looked at people or saw as people looked at us and looked away with fear or anger or disgust or derision. You know, these kinds of experiences, uh, I think, have motivated for me, one of the primary messages of what I try and communicate about this experience is that there's an opportunity for a fundamentally human connection. And what I mean by that is to look someone in the eyes, to treat them like they're a human being, to speak with them as though they're a person. And obviously, you know, many people are are dealing with very complex realities, whether they be drug or alcohol addictions or substance dependencies or mental disorders, etc. But, the willingness to engage and the willingness to treat one another like we're human beings instead of disregarding someone because of what they look like or what they smell like or who you think they are, I think that for me was one of the most primary lessons that I learned, certainly, while being on the streets Mm -hmm. and that I have sought to communicate, you know, through the various opportunities I've had to speak uh, Mm -hmm. about this experience.
0: Well, that experience turned into a book, Under the Overpass, uh, and you published that what year? Came out in two thousand and five, so uh,
1: almost a decade ago.
0: Wow. So, so in the last ten or so years, you have been in many ways talking about those lessons, and it sounds as though, as I'm hearing it, and as I've thought about it, and known you, those lessons really come in two kinds of categories, and I, I wonder if it'd be helpful to kind of make that distinction of the theoretical or, you know, philosophically, it's uh, the a priori way, the before experience kind of approach to learning. And then the a posteriori way, like the, the after experience kind of learning. And it sounds as though what you experienced maybe at Santa Barbara Rescue Mission before you, you know, as a volunteer versus checking in as a rescue mission person, that those two kinds of experiences informed the lessons in a, in a really unique way. And, and I'm guessing even further, to take it even further, as you've been talking about those experiences and lessons with various groups, some faith-oriented, some not faith-oriented, you've had a chance to uh, to experience another set of kind of responses to the lessons that you've learned, uh, where I'm guessing it would rub up against things for people and they might not like the way you're messing with their worldview. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, very, yeah, well said. And and I think in a lot of ways, all of us, uh, we get uncomfortable when people mess with our worldview. Sometimes it's sometimes just the healthiest thing in the world for someone to be messing with our worldview. And yet it not, <laughs> tends to make me uncomfortable, certainly. And I I think that that's a great way to set it up, Dan. I think that you know, even if we could put a really vivid picture to it, you know, to be someone who's serving a meal uh, at that soup kitchen line to be uh, versus being the person who's receiving that meal, and we're kind of talking about that dramatic of a distinction between the sort of presuppositions going into an experience or into research, and then the presuppositions or you know the conclusions that are drawn from that research and from those experiences. And you know, I've found in my life that that those are meant to be dialogical. They're meant to be in conversation with one another. You know, we sort of, as human beings, create ideas or perceptions about what we think the world is like, and then those bump up against reality. And we have to be willing to have those be in conversation. And if we get too rigid in either of those ways, you know, if, if we allow our presuppositions to become sclerotic or to become hardened, uh, then they'll probably crack when we actually encounter the real world. And if we're so likewise, if we're not willing to sort of reflect upon and, and hypothesize and discuss and consider what we've encountered in the real world will be, uh, in a way, I think, just so flat out on experience that uh, we won't have the opportunities to sort of reflect upon it and to, to gain in perhaps wisdom that might come from reflect, reflection upon actual experience. And I found in my own life and writing and creativity and research that these, these do really uh, mutually inform one another, that there's meant to be this sort of cross-pollination that takes place or this mutual reinforcement that goes on. That is enormously rich. And so I did a lot of research uh, prior to going to live on the streets for Sam and I both, you know, did a lot of research, volunteered a lot, interviewed many, many people who were on the streets of different cities and tried to get a sense of, okay, what are we actually going to encounter when we get onto the streets? And then to actually go and be there and to be experiencing it firsthand. I think in a sense, it's not that it shattered our presuppositions. It did certainly do that to some of them, but it just gave a whole new dimension to those presuppositions or it gave a whole new depth, a whole new reality to them. And that required that some of those presuppositions be thrown out because they had been proven to be inadequate or they had been proven to be too narrow or too too blind in a sense. Um, but then in another way, I mean, the whole chance to, to write about this, because Under the Overpass was written after Sam and I had returned from being on the streets, to then have you know, a a very luxurious period of time, in a sense, uh, five months to sort of process through that experience, write about it, reflect upon it, try and bring some of those lessons to articulacy, try and bring some of those experiences and and some of the people that we had met along the way into words, and actually say, okay, how do I communicate about this? And I find that that's actually sort of, at least as a creative, that's kind of how I've begun to sort of understand myself, uh, or sort of understand the work that I'm trying to do, is I'm trying to be a, a bridge builder, I'm trying to help People who have not had the experiences that I've had or who have not had the chance to sort of see life from the perspective that I've had, uh, have had the chance to catch a glimpse of it in a sense or to be intrigued by it. So when I go to a city and I have the chance to stand alongside of a rescue mission or a homeless... Advocacy organization. That's what I understand my role to be. Is you know most of the people who I'm speaking to uh, will not have had the chance to get to know some of the absolutely beautiful and fascinating and uh, astonishing men and women who are on the seat, on the streets of our cities. And they they're not they've not had the chance to do that. So how do I tell enough of the stories from the people that Sam and I had the chance to meet and the people that I still know who are who are homeless and some of my friends who are on the city streets? around where we live, how do I tell some of their story in an intriguing enough way that it actually bridges that gap that exists because of socioeconomic uh, differentiation or because people live in different socioeconomic spaces? And I found that that's been one of the most rewarding things uh, because, you know, for example, I I was at an event uh, in uh, the West Coast and had the chance to meet someone afterwards who had said, you know, hey, I've supported this organization financially, but I really don't want to get involved. I really don't want to get, you know... uh, sort of connected in a relational way because I think I don't know how to handle that. And so, you know, i discussed with this person and kind of said, you know, maybe even just going and volunteering, getting to know some of the people, hearing some of their stories, that might be a way to engage a bit more. And you might be surprised by some of the people you meet. Well, I heard from this person uh, several months later via email and they were astonished. They were completely blown away because they had done that. They'd taken that step and gone and actually gotten involved and sort of taken down one of those barriers, you know, and, and been willing to step outside of what was comfortable and actually get engaged. And what this person was saying was how shocked and amazed they were by how hardened their presuppositions were and how difficult they were to overcome, but then how beautiful and how hopeful and how encouraging and how relationally rich it had been for them once they had actually taken that step and gotten involved on a, uh, on a personal level. And so, I, I've been very encouraged and excited by that uh, as a creative and sort of viewing that work or the work that I'm trying to do as an invitation, in a sense, as a, as a bridge builder, uh, seeking to connect people to experiences and seeking to connect people to people who might otherwise uh, have very little reason or cause or invitation to connect with one another. So that's uh, something I've been really encouraged by in the process. Mm.
0: Wow, there's my mind is popping in a lot of directions, and I'm trying to think through the path from here because we have limited time, and I want to still make sure that we cover the ground that we need to. And to that end, I want to talk a little bit about the creative process as you describe it, because as you know, the audience for Converge are people who make things and try to make a living from those things, and also try to make a point with the stuff they're making. And and Mm -hmm. you know, you cover all three of those things. You are a writer professionally you are a professional speaker which I know we you and I have talked offline it's <laughs> I'm a professional speaker and I have a love hate relationship with that notion yes. Um, yes but that is what you do for a living i mean you you feed your family uh, based on that that thing and in addition to those things you know you you're deeply committed to the the craft of writing i i mean it's evident especially in your new book i want to talk more about that in just a few minutes but talk a little bit about the creative process for you? Like what, what are, I'm deducing things based on what I'm watching and reading and learning, but how would you describe in your own words, how you approach, let's say a writing project, given the ideals that you have and what you want to accomplish?
1: Yeah. It's brilliant question. And I think, you know, very much in this last project with the sacred year, it's, I think it's been a completely different experience than what uh, writing under the overpass was. I mean, for the very, um, Small reason, or rather substantial reason, depending on how you look at it, that I'm about fifty percent older now than I was when I wrote under the overpass. <laughs> so, I mean, like pretty substantially. I wrote under the overpass, and I was twenty, twenty-one, and just having turned thirty-one, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. With the sacred year coming out now, it's a very different sort of position in life and place in life. And you know, I look back at what I wrote when I was twenty, and you know, in some ways, it's like, well, gosh, I would say that very differently now, and it would be a completely different book now, et cetera. But you know, it's that's one of the
0: but it was it was the right book for a twenty year old.
1: Yes, yeah. for,
0: for, for, or the twenty year old you
1: at least. Yes, very much so, and I think that that you know is part of the part of the great risk and part of the great beauty and part of the great hope of whenever we create something as creatives. I mean, it's it, you put it out there and then it exists. It comes into the world. It has shape and form and being. And uh, you can't change that. You know, you can you can sort of disagree with yourself after the fact. uh, But that starts to sound, you know, quite schizophrenic in a way. And it's like, yeah, I did write it and a, a younger me wrote it. And it was the it was the book, it was the best book I knew to write. And it was the best book I was able to write at that point in time. And I think Along the way, since then, you know, I've I've learned and hopefully matured and hopefully grown as a creative and as a person. And you know, the conversations have more nuance and more depth and more uncertainty, but maybe also some deeper hope or deeper beauty or something like that. At least I would aspire to that. And I think that, yeah, in terms of approaching this project as a whole, you know, I think that that's one of the really interesting things as a writer is having to sort of hold that tension between okay, what what is. The market actually going to want to read, um, and versus what am I actually wanting to say? And navigating that, I mean, actually finding a publisher or actually finding you know a, a team that is willing to get behind a project, um, like the team that I've been working with at Thomas Nelson, has been extraordinary. Uh, but there's been that kind of careful navigation um, because, in a sense, the publisher believes that they understand very clearly what the market can handle or what the market uh, is wanting to read or what readership in general is wanting to see. And then I, as a creative, am saying, "Ah, but that's actually maybe not precisely what I'm wanting to go for. That's not precisely what I'm I'm actually aiming at here. And I think that maybe I, I have to hold true to this artistic vision of this creative sense of what I'm wanting to go towards Uh, regardless of what, uh, you know, the publisher might be willing to to publish or not. And there's many different aspects of that we could speak about. One, just very briefly, I'll mention was the subtitle, for example, The Sacred Year. Very lengthy subtitle. The subtitle is The Sacred Year, Mapping the Soulscape of Spiritual Practice, How Contemplating Apples, Living in a Cave, and Befriending a Dying Woman Revived My Life. Uh, So a very lengthy subtitle. And typically, you know, you don't see subtitles that long on books, Anywhere, uh, much less in this particular genre, they publishers tend to like things to be a little bit cleaner and quicker and quippier in a sense. But I really felt like, you know, especially for this project, um, The Sacred Year, there's a deep invitation woven throughout the whole text of The Sacred Year to be attentive, uh, to be willing to, in a sense, contemplate, to pay careful attention to things, to notice what's going on inside of us, to notice what's going on outside of us. Uh, to notice what's going on in our world and to notice what's going on in the people who who we find ourselves in this journey with. And so in a sense, I wanted to try and communicate something, uh, that invitation to careful attentiveness, even in the subtitle. Uh, So there was a lengthy negotiation about something, you know, quite quite significant in the book project with the publisher around something that simple, uh, you know, that complex and that simple. It was a lengthy, I mean, like a two week email dialogue kind of thing with the publisher about that. So I think that that's one of the things I've been growing in confidence and as a creative is, is a willingness to sort of trust my intuition uh, as a writer or as a as someone who's trying to create something, trying to give being to something in the world, even as that is an enormously risky process, but to trust my intuition and to begin to say, no, I actually, I actually believe deeply in this and I believe deeply enough in it to, to sort of defend it from the best intentions of others, uh, whoever those people may be while also being in dialogue with the creative community, of course. Like I I received tremendous feedback from the team I was working with at the publishing house and tremendous feedback from early readers and tremendous critique from early readers. And to be willing to absorb that and to incorporate that and to say, okay, um, yeah, I trust my intuition and I'm, I'm learning what parts of my intuition need to be refined by the creative community that I'm working with and whom I trust, but also which aspects of my creative intuition I need to be willing to defend And I need to be willing to cultivate and I need to be willing to help grow and come into existence in the world. So that even I use using the sort of metaphor of dialogic uh, a few moments ago of like a conversation of being in dialogue. I find that very much to be the case of the creative process as well.
0: Hmm. Gosh, I, I want to make a distinction between the learnings, like the input, the, you know, whether it be study theoretically or throwing yourself into the fire of the experience as that as those are things that are kind of coming in and then the exhale as as the 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 writing and the and the teaching and speaking and so forth and and making those distinctions in the midst of it there's this process there's this um method that I think all creatives employ whether they're aware of it or not is another conversation but my my sense is you're you're very conscious to it that there's it's a two-step dance at least if not more and in this case what i'm hearing you say is in the writing the process itself for you uh, you went through theoretical learning, experiential learning, the writing process, and then maybe a fourth part of the feedback loop uh, and the, kind of the going again with it. And I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit of if those are all kind of four separate stages, and maybe you want to frame it differently if that's not a good fit. But if there are different stages on route to the culmination with the publishing act, which is you know happening as we as we speak, talk a little bit about the the refining process of the edit. And, and getting that feedback, I want to hear a little bit more of when that creative team was coming back to you, how did you respond to it? And did it make the work better?
1: Yeah, great questions. And I, and I love the metaphor of breathing and, and the way that you sort of articulated that. And I think uh, maybe another metaphor that I found helpful on the way uh, was it's like, it's like cooking a really good meal um, in a sense. Like th- There are all these inputs that kind of come into it, all these ingredients. And you want to use good ingredients. You want to use fresh ingredients. You want to use ingredients that you think are going to sort of uh, move the project along towards the goal or the hope which you have for it. And then there's that kind of process of the actual you know, creation of it, bringing everything into the pot, uh, kind of stirring it, letting it simmer. Um, the reason I like the cooking metaphor is because it, it's, it's – Almost like the editorial phase is, okay, the, the dish is done or you've got all the ingredients and in at least maybe it hasn't cooked all the way yet and you're you're adjusting the spices. You're sort of adjusting the flavor. You have an intuitive feel of where you want it to go ultimately and maybe you get a few other people to taste it, a few other people to look at it. And you, you know the, the content is mostly there. Like you can't take things out once they're in. Uh, that's where it breaks down, where the metaphor breaks down from the writing process because obviously you can take things out. Just hit – you know, Control X and be done with it. <laughs> but um, I think that, that that aspect of the creative process for me of getting people's feedback and getting people's responses uh, is an enormously vulnerable uh, sort of moment. Like my, my wife, I, I love um, her mind and her creativity, and she's an incredibly good sense of whether or not things work or not. <laughs> so when we speak about our bullshitometer, right? Like she's got such a finely tuned bullshit meter, and it's like. She was, she was the first person to read the finished manuscript, and it was just so freeing to have her say, you know, this, this does not work. This is complete bullshit. This does not work. It's, it's, it's failing here. Uh, there are other good aspects. Uh, there are other very good aspects, but, you know, keep what's good, clean out what is garbage, and refine it. You know, so that sort of refining process of going back through it again and getting people's feedback and incorporating that feedback – and you know that's where back to that sense of being willing to protect or defend the intuition that we have as creatives have and sort of trusting that sense even if it doesn't necessarily make sense to other people or even if it doesn't necessarily ring true for other people being having enough uh, trusted Sort of other creatives in conversation or that we find ourselves in conversation with and actually cultivating those relationships such that when they give us feedback, we listen to it very carefully. We have enough of a sense of their honesty, their integrity, their abilities as creatives, as fellow creatives to say, I really need to listen to this. I might not agree with it, but I have to listen to it. And even if I don't do the changes that they're suggesting, maybe they set me on a course or on a trajectory that will help make the project stronger as a whole. And I trust their trajectory setting intuitions. Enough because there's enough of a relationship there that I'm going to listen to them, uh, no matter what. But it's a very interesting process, especially at least I found it to be very interesting in the writing. So Danae, my wife, read it, and then I had several close uh, friends and other creatives who you know who are very close to me in the process and were really engaged throughout the whole journey of the Sacred Year, and we were in regular conversation together about it, making tweaks as necessary. That was a very intimate and uh, very vulnerable, but very intimate and very enjoyable process. Some of the later stages of, of, for example, copy editing uh, or some of the later final stage aspects of editorial, I found to be really quite frustrating. Um, And what I mean by that is the editors with whom I was working at Thomas Nelson were extraordinary, and I very much appreciated uh, their perspectives and their feedback. Uh, But then just because of the way the publishing industry works, there were many different Freelance copy editors. One of these uh, copy editors, some of the copy editors' feedback was very good. They were catching things that absolutely must and should have been caught. But uh, a few of the copy editors were sort of coming back and saying, "You know, I don't like this. I don't like this metaphor, and, and you're mixing metaphors here, and this doesn't really make sense. And actually, this you need to rewrite this whole section. I mean, this is." literally like 24 hours before it's supposed to go to the printers. Mm. And I'm, I was sort of like hearing this and reading the comments and, you know, Microsoft word and and sort of about to pull my hair out because it's like, wait, you're, you're kind of unraveling the whole thing right here. And I'm sorry that you don't understand it or it doesn't make sense to you or you don't like it, but, I can't unravel this at this point. Like the the tapestry is woven or, or the dish is just about to go on the table or, you know, like we've already bottled the beer and it's ready <laughs> to be, you know, ready to be popped. Like you can't, you can't change this now at this stage in the process. So a bit of miscommunication, I think in terms of what was possible at that stage in the project. And so I finally had to write my primary editor back and just kind of say, Hey, I, I don't know who this copy editor is uh, or, or, uh, but I, I just can't engage their comments. I'm really sorry because mm-hmm. it, it, It's so fundamental to the project, Um, and I, I think for me as a creative to be willing to say, you know what, I can't meet everybody's expectations. I have to, I can't. I'm not trying to write a book for everybody, and this this book will not work for some people. It will fail in some people's minds. Uh, But uh, the willingness to be okay with that, and to say, but what I am creating will work well with some people. It will be a good dialogue partner for some people in the midst of their journey. And I have to stay true to what I sense this project uh, is about and what I'm hoping it's about, and defend that even from other people's best intentions to make it something other than what I think it is supposed to be. So good.
0: What I'm hearing and what you're saying, among other things, is this this sense of ownership. Like what I'm reminded of, you know, having I have four kids, as you know, and especially with the first couple, where we really we still don't know what we're doing, but we really didn't know what we were doing in the early kids and. I remember uh, there was some people that we trusted and other people we didn't. And even mm-hmm. go, like na- navigating the the medical industry and realizing like, yeah, some people, uh, they're just calling it in today. They don't care about the work in the same kind of way that other people do. And, uh, yes. you know, like orders for vials of blood uh, to test something when— our children don't have enough blood to give at that moment and going, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to take responsibility for my kid and say, you're not going to put that order in right now. <laughs> yes. And, and, yes. And that that's part of the responsibility of the creative too. So yes. if we can follow the metaphor, um, what I'm hearing you say is you need to know uh, when to receive feedback as this is making, this is breaking it down or, in, you know, even your example of pruning in your book, when you talk about that, and that's a good thing. It's a critical thing. And to, to discern the other side of it, where, no, that's actually going to violate the integrity of what we're trying to accomplish here. And I'm going to protect that.
1: Yes. And I think the living metaphors like are the best way to go about this, or at least they've been most helpful for me in trying to articulate both the, the joy, the love, the hope, and the sheer terror around the creative process. And as a male, uh, wanting to be very careful around those kinds of metaphors uh, from the, like, In the language of birth, but I'll use it only because my female uh, editor, wonderful woman at Thomas Nelson named Megan, uh, literally finished her round of editorial on the sacred year about a week before she gave birth to her first child. And she wrote me just before she kind of signed off from maternity leave and said, you know, I've just realized something as a male, this is probably the closest you'll ever get to giving birth. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I think that there's something there's something true in that. There's something about that where you you you. Are hoping for the flourishing of a project. You're hoping it does well. You're hoping it becomes what it can be, and that means everything that you've said. Uh, and I, I, we do not have any children as of yet. We're hoping to at some point, but we don't uh, currently. So I can't, you know, claim the analogy for my own. But it seems that there's there is a relationship in there in some way of hoping for the best for something. And uh, needing to defend and cultivate and provide for it in all of the multitudinous ways uh, that you've described and that I'm trying to get at around the writing project, yeah. even when it sometimes means saying to the people with the best of intentions, actually, no, you can't do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, you mustn't do that because that will fundamentally alter or alienate or damage what. Uh, this is, you know, and that kind of thing. So being able to, and that's hard, right? Like I'm yeah. assuming as a yeah. parent, all the more so, especially when you're, when you're speaking with other professionals who this is their field, this is their game in a sense. And it's like, you're disagreeing with them and saying, actually, no, we don't need to do that right now. Thank you very much. Like I have my child's best interests in mind as well. I have my projects, best interests in mind. Thank you very much. And you can't do that, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So uh, very delicate. And and man, if only the stakes weren't, you know, as high as they are, right? I <laughs> or, mean, it's or like... as
0: far as they feel high. Yeah, yes. What I'm hearing in this, and by the way, I had a very similar experience with my second book. Um, the first mm-hmm. one felt very easy, and the second one was just like a bear, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also ran up against, you know, we had some, had to make some shifts with the editorial team, and Different experience, but I can relate to what you're describing. But, but I guess um, in a minute, I, I mean, in the time we have remaining, I definitely want to turn a corner and I want to actually talk about the, the sacred year, the book itself, because I've read it, I devoured it. It really bugs me how much you have impacted my life, actually. <laughs> um, and and we'll talk more about that in just a second. But one last comment: this on the creative process itself. When it comes to, well, it came out in the way you just described it. Like, okay, so you don't have any kids right now, but it, that a priori, a posteriori distinction keeps coming up over and over again. It almost sounds as though you don't feel like you're authoritative until until you've experienced it, yet you still could be true and right just with a the theoretical, and by the way, you, you are. Um, so you don't have kids, but you, I, I want to just give you permission to say, you can actually claim that metaphor, like it's yours, <laughs> whether or not you have kids. And I want to say that to our audience too, that there's something in in the process where we're always on a spectrum of having experienced it and haven't experienced it yet. In fact, we're 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 engaged with it for the sake of experiencing it. Uh, and I, I guess I'd love to hear you comment just a little bit about that that moment before, like before you're the published author, but you're still a writer. How do you claim? Like, do you not get to claim the status, or do you get to claim it? And you actually have to if you want to get across that that line. Does that question yeah. make sense?
1: Uh, it does. I think it does. And, um, you know, I, I think it's you're asking it in an incredibly opportune time because I'm very much sort of grappling with that in the midst of <laughs> that sort of phase of hiatus of waiting of having written but not yet published, even though it's going to be published. And, you know, and I think that there I experience at least and and I don't know what is what is you know, appropriate or, or not appropriate. But like certainly I am experiencing a great deal of trepidation around that and a great deal of both uh, combined hope and yet at the same time uh, a strong lack of confidence, you know, of just kind of like, wow, I, I have no idea what this is going to be, what it's going to do. Um, and so I guess for me, experience in a sense is is – um, enabling of confidence, and maybe I have those backwards. Maybe you know confidence should exist before experience has verified it or something like that. I don't know, but I, I certainly at least personally experienced a great deal of uh, of uncertainty. like it's it's written, uh, it's final, it's off at the printer. I can do nothing to change it. you know so there's a there's in a sense of finality to it and a guarantee that it's going to it's going to hit the shelves. It's going to be out. But at the same time, there's a great deal of uncertainty around uh, what that's actually going to mean and what it's going to be. And so, you know, I think that I'm sort of holding that, holding that and waiting and anticipating. But I maybe, I mean, I, you know, as a creative, I sort of have this, uh, maybe this idealized version of what a creative will be or maybe what I'll be as a creative, you know, when I'm in my 50s or when I'm in my 60s or whatever, you know, kind of that. Jack, uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, as good as it gets. You know the guy who's written fifty best-selling books, and he sort of cracks his knuckles, finishes the last chapter, writes the ends, and pushes back, and it's all done and finished. But <laughs> you know, I've read enough about the creative process of, you know, from Anne Lamott or Stephen King or you know Stephen Pressfield. I mean, these the other people writing about their work and what they do, and uh, you know, I think I've sort of, I guess maybe become more comfortable with the fact that that sense of the perfect creative who knows that they've done great work all the time is maybe a, a fictionalized ideal. Uh maybe maybe it's not. Maybe there are people who experienced it that way, but I certainly am I'm not there yet if if that is the case. Well then then this is a
0: perfect moment for me just to segue into the book itself because in my mind the, uh, an as good or better metric might be is it true? Mm. And mm. and as a reader, as someone who is privileged to to get an early copy and and by the way, like you, and by the way, this uh, if you're a listener one of the quote-unquote perks of being a published author is people send you a lot of books, and they just show up at your door. And sometimes they're friends who send you books. And in this case, that was the case with Michael. I knew Michael. I wanted to read it. I'd read his first book. I was excited. And uh, at the same time, I was overwhelmed. I had a lot going on. And it was one of those books that I, I started it, and I just I just couldn't stop. I mean, I read one chapter, another chapter. Tammy's like, what do you you, come in? It's dark out. Like, (laughs) like, like, and and it just so happened that I started it the week before we went on vacation as a family. We went up to um, a place called Hume Lake Camp. We have a long history there. I met my wife there. And it was a, a luxurious week of being able to sit in the mountains and, and I got to read and, and I got in conversations with family. There was twenty four of us in three cabins, and I had a chance. I think I've sold more copies of Sacred Year within <laughs> our family alone. And I and I say all that to say it was because it spoke truth to me. And and even there, there's kind of an ebb and flow in that whether or not it spoke truth to me, it spoke truth to you to write it, and there was integrity and authenticity out of out of that. There was a real experience there, and I just want to give the feedback and. And I want to give the affirmation and hopefully encouragement for others to, to take advantage of this opportunity. But Sacred Year is one of those books where it, they just don't come around very often, where where at least for me, I I not only was kind of wooed in uh, by the narrative and the principles, but I found myself going, I, I actually want to create a new experience out of it. And I'm in, I've actually started my own Sacred Year. But people don't know mm. what the heck I'm talking about. So let me slow down for a second, because we just have a few minutes left. Can you talk a little bit about what the heck this book is in your own words? And then I want to comment again on how I've responded to it.
1: Yeah, no. Well, Dina, thanks so much for your comments on uh, on The Sacred Year. And I, I'm just really blown away by that. And, and as someone who is... Quite Trepidatious about the project before it's kind of hitting the shelves. Uh, it's just really affirming and really encouraging. So, thank you. And thanks for reading it, even in the midst of being overwhelmed. And um, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, so, so, the sacred year. The sacred year is a year long engagement with ancient and modern spiritual practices. From a place of being jaded and disillusioned from merely talking about stuff, sort of being uh, out on the road as a speaker in an itinerant way at a different city or a different location, different place every night and feeling very disconnected from what we've been talking about all along, the actual experience of something. And so this book, The Sacred Year, uh, is the narrative journey of my engagement with ancient and modern spiritual practices with the hope of actually encountering depth nourishment and authenticity in my spiritual life and in my spiritual journey. Because the irony of sort of my life, in a sense, uh, is that I swung, I had the opportunity to swing quite far in the direction of just being someone who was creating words and stories and metaphors around experience and not actually in a sense, being anchored to life itself or being anchored to the experience itself. So I was you know, uh, doing this traveling and writing and speaking and having a wonderful time doing that, but I found that, in a sense, I became malnourished. Uh, I don't use that term lightly, um, but I think I, I became disconnected from sources of nourishment. I became disconnected from that experience and that lived knowledge. And it became too ethereal. It became too disconnected. So I was talking about... Um, Caring about other people instead of actually caring about other people and then trusting the stories or the metaphors or the language would emerge from that experience itself. So in a sense, it it became, uh, I think, uh, thirsty or dehydrated is another way to say it. And I kind of came to a a sort of moment of existential crisis. I um, was on a plane flight home. And I found myself thinking, you know what, gosh, uh, I hope I never have to go on another trip and talk about anything ever again. As a matter of fact, I hope the plane doesn't even make it to its destination. And I sort of, you know, was listening to this dialogue taking place in my head and thinking, wait a minute, what what is – something's going on here. What is going on here? So made a retreat to a local monastery, met an incredible – Uh, An incredible monk there named Father Solomon, who sort of launched me on this year of intentional engagement with spiritual practices that have been a deep source of revitalization, of nourishment, of hope, and I think of a deep sort of authenticity. Uh, So, yeah, that's what uh, the Sacred Year is, is a year-long engagement with spiritual practices, both ancient and modern, uh, in search of depth, nourishment, and authenticity in the spiritual life.
0: Yeah the the uh the the long subtitle actually does capture uh, quite a bit now in retrospect but i remember as i was going into the book itself what really hooked me was this this relationship with this guy this the father solomon character and he's a real guy
1: I Father Solomon. The conversations uh, within the Sacred Year are an amalgam of conversations, Uh, and so it's a pseudonym and it's an amalgam of conversations. So, in a sense, Father Solomon is an archetype. Uh, He is uh, an amalgam of these different conversations and different experiences. I found, uh, I think, in a sense, well, you'd have to do that
0: just for the integrity of the relationship and 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 for the flow of the book. I mean, I, I can't imagine otherwise.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. That's precisely why I ended up making that decision. And in some senses, you know, I'm I'm curious to see how the response is to that fact. But at the same time, realizing that, gosh, you know what? Um, to bring this story together and to do it in a compelling and in a creative way, uh, there were you know certain decisions that I had to make around how to create those conversations or how to communicate those conversations and how to position those conversations within the scope as a whole. So again, back to that conversation between the experience and the words about it, some of the creativity and artistic license that goes into that. Yeah. Yeah. So so the relationship basically
0: invited you to, to disrupt things. And in particular, it was, it was striking to me how you leveraged anchors. So whether it be Father Solomon or Hazelnuts or Selah or... 1,405 shovelfuls, you know, those those kinds of experience, people haven't read it, don't know what I'm talking about. But there are these mm-hmm. moments where you're identifying certain um, things, artifacts, or again, anchors is the best thing I could think of, where, and you kept returning to them. And this is where I felt like the book, it started and was solid. And the reason I kept getting wooed to the next chapter was there was this ebb and flow to a new insight experience. And then, oh, don't forget the other one. So it, there was kind of a, a cumulative build. And by the time I, it, we got through to the end, I was just like, this is not the end. This is the beginning. This is like a launch pad mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I have kind of my own anchors now that are coming in. So again, just as one more affirmation, and I'm nervous that this is sounding like too gooey and people are going, no, really? Like, no, <laughs> really, really and truly. I I I'm walking out of this experience now, and this has been about a month since I read it, and I have, I've, I've I walk places Mondays. I don't eat for two meals, and then end my fast with my family in a family meal that we do together that we're committed to together. I actually take Sabbath, like I take a day off where I unplug, and and these are ideals that you know they're part of my own tradition, and but I ignore them. I just I just forgot them. I just left them aside, and and traded them in for a prostituted hurried life and mm-hmm. and this is what this gift so I, I say all this for folks to not just hear the contents of the book like oh that's interesting or not i actually i would ask you to consider where's your life at right now and do you find yourself in a place where like slowing down rest remembering again the ideals that you committed to a long time ago but forgot this would be the kind of book that might woo you back and if, if there's one person that can stand on a hill and say, hey, this works, <laughs> uh, the, at least in the short term, the quality of the response in my own life, even in the midst of discouragement and frustration, this is not an idealized kind of perspective. But I just want to affirm, man, this was uh, this was a huge accomplishment. And and I say that not only for me, but also it sounds like even in your own life, the, the journey has continued with your own practice. It's gone on beyond a year.
1: Yes, very much so. And I think that's, I'm so encouraged to hear you say that, Dane, because I think that what I was hoping – that this would not become a sort of a definitive guide or something like that because it's not that. I think you sort of talked about The Secret Year as a launching point or starting points. And I think that's precisely my sense after having, you know, dug deeply into these practices and really sought to engage and sort of uh, suck the marrow out of life to use that sort of language or really engaging and not letting myself stay at the surface of things, but trying to plunge into the depths, trying to really engage in a deep way. That's the conclusion that I came away with. If There's a single conclusion: it's that these kinds of practices, from fasting to pilgrimage to Sabbath keeping to actually getting to know other people, caring well for them uh, in volunteer capacities, whether it be in you know homeless contexts or it be in hospital contexts, all of those are things which profoundly reform and reshape us and reframe our perspective on life. And those practices have the capacity to do that on into infinity, on for the remainder of our lives. So there are new lessons to be learned in fasting, whether you're 20 or you're 40 or you're 60 or you're 80 or you're 100. There are new lessons to be learned in seeking to care well for another person who's in a hurting situation or in a pained situation. These are all practices to which there is no bottom. There is always increasing depth that we are invited into, I believe. And so, you know, I, I found that that was where I sort of was left at the end of the sacred year is, I've just, this is just the beginning. This is just the start. this These are not concluding thoughts. These are beginning thoughts. This is all prologue. This is, you know, that kind of perspective, I think, was in a sense very, very humbling uh, because it, it sort of, in a way, made me say, gosh, everything I've said uh, <laughs> is just the start. Uh, but there's also a great deal of hope there, too, and I think a great deal of excitement for me is, as, as I was in such a dry and weary place, to use that language, um, I think I did find... Uh, nourishment and and encouragement and sort of revitalization beyond what I was even beginning to anticipate or expect uh, when I launched into this whole Sacred Year. So you're spot on. Where can people find the Sacred Year? The best place to find it is either to your local bookseller or, of course, online at all the usual places. Or you can go to www.thesacredyear.com to find out more about the Sacred Year and download a free uh, sample chapter, actually several chapters, and to get a sense of what the tone and feel is. So thesacredyear.com or any of the online retailers. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Dane. Really appreciate your time. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you.
0: This was episode 027 of Converge, the business of creativity podcast. Convergepodcast.com is our home where you'll find past episodes as well as Go, our annual gathering of creatives looking to make a difference with their creations. Music today provided by Music.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks again to Anna Quays at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Michael for being with us. Visit him at michaelyankowski.com. As usual, I want to thank you for spreading the word about the show. When you leave questions and comments on the site and rate us on places like iTunes, we recognize that you caring enough to do that sort of thing is a really big deal, and we are grateful. That's it for now. I'm Dave Sanders. I'll see you here next time.